This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. The Biden administration this week insisted that Russia's mounting actions on the border of Ukraine are an invasion. John Finer, an advisor to Biden, said on CNN, quote, we think this is, yes, the beginning of an invasion, Russia's latest invasion into Ukraine. He then added more strongly, an invasion is an invasion, and that is what is underway. I am calling it an invasion. Russian troops are close to the eastern Ukraine provinces of Donetsk and Luhansk. These are areas controlled by separatist Ukrainian forces that Russian President Vladimir Putin's government has now recognized as independent. For weeks, the U.S. and NATO have threatened a swift and harsh response to Russia's encroachment of Ukraine. Joining me to put it in perspective is Rahul Mahajan. He's the author of two books on the Iraq War, Full Spectrum Dominance, U.S. Power in Iraq and Beyond, and The New Crusade, America's War on Terrorism. He also teaches at the, at the University of Wisconsin, River Falls, and he is the U.S. Foreign Policy and Empire Correspondent for our program. Welcome back, Rahul. Great to be with you again, Sonala. Does it matter whether what Russia is doing is to be labeled an invasion or not? I mean, I guess it matters in the sense that if it's uh, big enough to be unequivocally an invasion, that's one thing. And if it's going to continue with this sort of tinkering around the borders and, uh, um, you know, the expression of various threats, that's quite another. Obviously, there's not a full-scale invasion yet. So what is happening then, I understand, is that uh, Russia has been essentially approaching these two eastern Ukrainian territories. And with the recognition that they are now independent, I imagine that Russia is hoping to uh, either enter them, take them over, declare them Russia. I mean, what's the end game that Biden thinks Putin is up to here? Um, I mean, do we really imagine that there's a full-scale invasion of the entire country of Ukraine at stake here? Or is it a few provinces um, on the eastern part of the country? Well, it's hard to speculate about what, uh, what Biden and the U.S. government think is happening, although... Uh, if I had to guess, they, they do think it about it in terms of a maximal scenario, which involves uh, a real Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, as of yet, I mean, if you look at Putin's rhetoric, it sounds very much, it's very much consistent with that. He said in a recent speech that uh, essentially Ukraine is not a real country in itself it, and, and Belarus as it happens, should essentially be part of some uh, reconstituted greater Russia. And uh, if he means that, if he intends to act on it, that signals uh, some sort of invasion and occupation. Uh, I would say that the, the evidence that suggests that that may be a possibility is essentially the fact that uh, Putin has gotten away more or less with uh, every one of his uh, uh, moves in this regard in the last uh, 10 or 15 years, which is to say the sort of explicit uh, um, uh, violation of what are usually considered the uh, so-called Westphalian norms about 
uh, preserving the territorial integrity of other countries and uh, not uh, not effectively annexing territory as he did in Crimea. Um, he's gotten away with it, so that would suggest maybe he thinks he can do something better, bigger. But uh, on the other side, and what I think is the dominant factor, is that any reasonable cost-benefit analysis would have to suggest that uh, a full-on occupation of Ukraine uh, is a potential disaster, and uh, it will turn out to be simply too big uh, a bite for Russia to chew. The Soviet Union, which was vastly uh, larger and more powerful, found Afghanistan, which is uh, smaller and less populous than Ukraine, uh, too big to digest. And it's hard to imagine how anybody, even remotely within the realm of rationality, would think that this is a good idea. So my guess is still that it is mounting threats of war and possibly significant violence along the border uh, in order to basically get some sort of acknowledgement from Ukraine. I don't think it's simply a matter of getting an undertaking uh, from the US and NATO that Ukraine will not be allowed to join. I think he wants more at this point. There seems to be a lot of bluster on both sides. I mean, with the Biden administration calling this an invasion before there actually has been an invasion, you know, it seems to want to further this narrative that uh, that Russia is ready to take over all of Europe, which of course plays into wanting to have NATO continue to have a reason for for um, existing. And of course, Russia has invaded Ukraine before. It probably will invade it again, but it hasn't, as far as you know, we know, and you and I are speaking on Tuesday, that hasn't technically happened. Uh, but the Biden administration is calling it an invasion. But that seems to suggest that they don't have much leverage and that now with Biden's announcement that there will be sanctions, this may be all that that uh, the U.S. and NATO have over Russia. I mean, certainly there's no appetite in the U.S. public for an actual war involving U.S. troops, right? Well, yes, of course not. I mean, and this is where I think uh, a lot of people around the political spectrum, including on the left, are very confused. Whatever uh, is your analysis of the overall general warmongering tendencies of the United States, the United States avoids getting into wars with great powers. It avoids getting into long-standing occupations of landlocked areas. When people were worried about the United States invading Sudan after they declared what was going on in Darfur a genocide in 2005, it was very clear that was never going to happen. Similarly, this is not going to happen. And if avoiding war with great powers is a, is a consideration for the U.S., how much more is avoiding war with Russia, which is something that the United States has very strenuously done uh, for a very long time now. And in fact, uh, even in, in the Korean War, when there were a few, uh, uh, a few cases of U.S. And, and Soviet fighter jets mixing it up, the United States quickly moved to make sure that that was not going to happen again. I mean, that is simply not a possibility. In terms of sanctions short of military action, it looks like, at least for now, the planned Nord Stream 2 pipeline uh, connecting Russia and Germany is at least uh, indefinitely on hold, if, if not worse. But whether that is really a sanction on Russia or on Germany uh, remains to be seen. 
Now, it seems as though the uh, Russian government has some more leverage than it's being made out to be, or maybe I'm reading this wrong, there's certainly a dependence of Europe on Russia's natural gas reserves. Um, and there's some fear that if Russia is, um, you know, if, if there's too much focus on Russia, or if, if Russia's pushed back against too hard, that, uh, that they'll cut off those energy supplies. Um, you know, if you read the headlines, the potential Russian invasion of Ukraine is the worst possible thing that could happen. It's the center of all coverage right now. How significant is this in the grand scheme of things on a global level for Europe's energy future, for sort of world politics? Well, I mean, to, to pick the smaller question first, uh, even right now, before the, uh, the, the crisis has ensued, um, the Europe's energy crisis is being dealt with in part by massively stepped up liquefied natural gas shipments from the United States. Um, so gas is one of these funny things where aside from the liquefied natural gas and tankers, gas is sort of a continental uh, uh, commodity in the sense that the, the vast majority of it is trans supported by pipelines that don't cross oceans and so on. And so that's why Russia's gas supply in particular is uh, so important uh, for Europe. Uh, Germany, for example, gets about 20% of its power right now from Russian gas. And since it is continuing its denuclearization, uh, presumably the plans are for that only to go up. So this, uh, you know, if there is some sort of suspension of Russian gas supply that means you know major uh, uh, adaptation required uh, by various European countries. My guess is that it won't come to that, uh, and that this is why this is another one of the reasons why uh, it, the cost-benefit analysis for Putin of creating a serious crisis seems seems just really off. I mean, it, you know, Russia's entire prosperity is built on extractive industries oil, gas, uh, precious metals. So and Russia can't afford to suspend um, the energy supply. Yeah, he seriously imperils that supply to Europe and doesn't find alternative markets, uh, uh, then uh, there's going to be a serious uh, uh, downturn in the Russian economy. It's not clear to me how much he can, uh, he can make up for this by supplying more to China, but obviously that is part of his thinking. My guess is that... Uh, it will be very bad for Putin's rule if uh, if the, there's a serious uh, curtailing of Russian gas sales. And then on the grand scheme of things, um, you know, how seriously would it impact world politics if those two Ukrainian uh, separatist provinces are, you know, declared? Russian or are taken over? I mean, obviously, if you're a Ukrainian living in those, it's or, you know, earth shattering for you, uh, but for NATO, for European and U.S. politics, is this a very serious issue? Well, I mean, th this is uh, this is a guess, but my guess is that Putin is not like Hitler in the sense that uh, every time you give him an inch, he'll take a mile. He's not uh, going to continue expanding indefinitely when he sees as he's 
possibly seeing right now that the United States is not really in a position to stop him militarily. My guess is that any continued expansion will still be slow. I mean, the big, the big if on that is, is he going to actually uh, seriously invade Ukraine or not? But it, it, it doesn't look like, as far as I can tell, it is part of a grand scheme to, uh, for Russia to take over Europe. Uh, and of course, uh, obviously, um, it, it can't possibly uh, uh, risk war with, uh, with countries that are in NATO. I mean, the fact that, uh, that Ukraine is not in NATO is the strongest evidence that the United States is not willing to, as they say, go to the mattresses over this matter. Although it, of course, seems to be giving that impression. What do you make of Biden's handling of this whole situation? It seems to me that on such matters, Democratic presidents, perhaps even Republican presidents, with the exception of Trump, are fairly interchangeable. They tend to have very similar responses to to these sorts of um, Russian actions. That has been the case at some point, but we're in a period of transition where everything about the uh, the foreign policy establishment is, you know, in a state of flux and dissolution. So I would no longer make generalizations about Republican versus Democratic presidents. We'll have to see what the future brings. But uh, I will say that uh, despite the fact that it, some of it has appeared silly, you know, the constant stream of leaks, the story about the fact that the invasion was going to happen on February 16th and so on. Mostly, I don't have a problem with how Biden has handled it. He is uh, from a position of, of weakness, in this case, of relative lack of leverage. He has, in fact, uh, been doing what he can to persuade Putin to stand down. Now, you could say that it would have been better to do it in some sort of uh, less public and potentially less humiliating fashion, but- um, Humiliating for who, really the US? No yes, I mean, so, so the natural thing to do, if you are saying all this stuff and making all these, doing all this blustering and Putin then backs down, he has lost face. So the usual notion uh, of diplomacy is to try to say a lot more quietly behind closed doors than you do in public. But I think it's pretty reasonable to guess that that that, that would not work particularly well in this case, and that it's a lot more than Putin simply trying to get uh, some general recognition that he is important. I think that he's already done that. And what about within Ukraine itself? Um, you know, we have this president uh, who came into office, Volodymyr Zelensky, with not much political experience, um, just in terms of assessing how, what his leadership of Ukraine, a country that has struggled with decades of corruption. Um, what do you make of his leadership? He was, of course, you know, pe people here in the United States learned his name during the impeachment trial of Donald Trump, uh, but that didn't say very much about his own leadership. This seems to be a big test of his leadership uh, in, this, in this very moment with Russia on his eastern border. Well, I think it's probably likely that Zelensky is in over his head and that even though he's been here for a number of years, he's still relatively inexperienced. But I can't really imagine what uh, uh, what he could do in this situation. I think he was right to start out by somewhat 
you know, uh, uh, downplaying or soft peddling the Biden administration's claims about the imminence of war, uh, if, if only as a as a clear suggestion that uh, that Ukraine was open to talking. Uh, I think that uh, my guess is he has finally, if if he had not earlier figured out that there's only so much that the West is actually going to do for him, uh, and that. Uh, uh, it's very much what happens is very much going to depend on what uh, Ukraine can do for itself. Beyond that, uh, I don't think um, I don't think I have much to say. That Ukrainian uh, politics is obviously just uh, you know again in a state of complete flux. I mean, his his party that won a near majority in parliament did not even exist before that election cycle. It's Trying to understand politics in countries like that, it's sort of the opposite of in the United States, where you have these very clear, stable, defined party identities. Um, he has, uh, with regard to uh, you know what is, I guess, the proximate cause of of, um, of tension, which is the uh, the status of the Donetsk and Luhansk provinces. I mean the the. The Minsk Accords seem to suggest, at least very much in a pro-Russian reading, that uh, the simple fact of uh, Russian meddling in these provinces and the creation of these so-called People's Republic governments means that Ukraine should simply effectively cede sovereignty and allow a referendum, something like the referendum that Putin conducted in Crimea, uh, again, allowing a referendum before Ukrainian government can reestablish control over those country uh, over those provinces. You know, this is not the kind of thing that countries generally agree to unless they're under overwhelming threat. So I think that the the only way to really uh, interpret Ukraine's agreement, or such as it has been to those accords, has been that it was under the is under extreme military coercion from Russia. And so uh, if that if if somehow there can be a face-saving way to, to stand down by agreeing to some sort of process for these two uh, republics to uh, declare themselves independent, that would still be, uh, you know, a really bad precedent in terms of the basic inadmissibility of uh, effectively acquiring territory by violence. Rahul, I want to thank you so much for joining us today and helping put these things into perspective. Well, thanks for having me. My guest has been Rahul Mahajan. He's the author of two books on the Iraq War, Full Spectrum Dominance, U.S. Power in Iraq and Beyond, and The New Crusade, America's War on Terrorism. He teaches at the University of Wisconsin, River Falls, and is the U.S. Foreign Policy and Empire Correspondent for our program. We've been discussing Russia's encroachment of Ukraine and the U.S. NATO response. I'm Sonali Kolhatkar. You can access this and other interviews on our website, risingupwithsonali.com. By becoming a subscriber, find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify and follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at RU with Sonali.